Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Today we're going to hear short interviews with three pastors in three different Christian traditions about their process of referring congregants to therapists in their area. I even interviewed John Harrelson, the senior pastor of the church that Jaffrey and I left a year and a half ago, because despite his and I's significant differences, he is the one who referred me to my therapist, who I love and am so grateful for. Now, this is a topic that it seems to me could use more attention, not least because pastors are in a perfect position to help Christians of all stripes get the mental health help that they need when they need it. And I think most of us will need this kind of help at some point in our lives, whether or not uh, we decide to get it. We talk about referral practices, finding trustworthy therapists, finding some who understand where Christian clients are coming from, how much that matters, We talk a little bit about some of these pastors' own therapeutic experiences and more. So first up is Dr. Doug Bursch. Doug, thank you so much, man, for joining me here. Uh, I'd like to start by, just because you're a a pastor in the Foursquare denomination, not everybody knows what that is. Can you just give us a minute or two on what that means? Uh, I don't know if people in my own denomination know what it is sometimes. <laughs> I had a guy come to our church and say, uh, he had been here for a while. He goes, are we weird? And I was like, no, we're not weird. 
It's like, okay, that's good. That's all I need to know. So uh, Foursquare <laughs> came out of Pentecostal, charismatic, but even within that context, there's a lot of diversity of what that means. So I think they would call themselves Bible-believing, but all, of course, churches call themselves Bible-believing, but in the sense of whatever happened in the New Testament can happen today. My understanding of Foursquare, uh, which I don't even think I was, yeah, was clear yeah. on the on the charismatic connection there, but they ordain women. It's egalitarian. And in the sort of evangelical sphere, a lot of Foursquare churches are evangelical. I don't know whether you guys consider yourselves that, but in terms of what people would think of, you know, contemporary worship, you know, a basic kind of fairly conservative biblical approach to stuff, but then women pastors. So I've always thought of it as like uh, a kind of interesting and exciting, hopeful anomaly in that world. Well, it's interesting because you have in Pentecostal denominations, theoretically, they believed women could minister, but they didn't always do that in practice. Foursquare was started by a woman, so hopefully that is a a value. Uh, Sadly, that can be a value, but it's not always expressed. And I don't even think it's expressed well in our denomination that there's not nearly enough women who should pastor. So people say, we believe women can hold every role, but in the practice of culture, the oppressive realities have come in, and whether that was intentional or not intentional – you need to, you know, in a systematic way or a systemic way, deal with those things. So that's something yeah. I push for in our own denomination. Great. Well, that's cool that you are in a denomination where you can push for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's within bounds. So I guess um, I have one question about the ordination process. So how does a Foursquare minister become ordained? Is there seminary involved? Is there just a leading of the spirit? Is that confirmed by anybody? I don't mean to give you a hard time. No, no, that's okay. Uh, Pentecostals tend to have a low view of education and a high view of spirit anointing. And I'm not trying to say that in a negative light. It's the idea of, you know, the Holy Spirit's called you. Right. You can be a pastor. Uh, The problem with that, though, is sometimes you have people with very little education and they need to grow in their education. So the entry level to be a pastor, there's not a lot of educational requirements, but that's one of the things our denomination is talking about is continued education. And this also works for different ethnic groups. Let's say if you have Spanish speaking pastors who might not have as much access to education, that it's, you know, if we put a thing, you have to have a master's of divinity, then we're leaving out a whole group. Uh, but totally, yeah. as they're pastors, you know, I have a doctorate, so I care about education, but the reality is we're the goal is to have more education. Then you go through an interview process and they see if you sign on the, the essentials and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, the reason I asked that is because I think that for other people I interview, you, you happen to be the first one I'm doing even though I don't know where it will be in the episode, it might have been part of seminary, right? To say, hey, you're a pastor and not a therapist. Mm. But uh, as a Foursquare pastor, you didn't have to go to seminary. So no one forced you to sort of take a class about pastoral care versus therapeutic care or something to that effect. So for you, lacking that sort of official impetus, when did you know that it would be important to help you know, parishioners find a therapist as opposed to meeting with them as a pastor. Well, one thing I did go to seminary and seminary does not deal with this. It might now, but when I was in seminary, they didn't deal with that. Well, I imagine our Episcopal priest, you know, maybe in hers or something, you know, it probably depends on what seminary, right? Right. Well, but the context is because I spent a bit of time with different pastors on this. This is changing and some denominations do it better than others. Some seminaries do it better than others. But the idea of just how you actually get accreditation for seminary is to offer certain classes that are often not relevant to actually pastoring. That's my personal opinion. So (laughs) that whole area is trying to change. So even people who, I bet you even people who had classes, they said it was not nearly enough. For me, 
my parents, to me, always had a healthy view of mental health, and they didn't distinguish that the mind is different than any other organ in the body. So just as I can hurt my knees, my mind can hurt. Just as I can be born with certain deficits or have things happen to me that cause uh, for illnesses or harm to occur, that the mind is like any other part of the body. And because they taught me with that, then I was very open to just educating myself, myself on that reality. So I guess that would be why it became important for me to talk about mental health. Here's the example I'll give people. If you lose a leg before you become a Christian and you become a Christian, you're still only going to have one leg. Right. It, it, you're just going to, and I know this is kind of extreme, we know this, but if you have a mental health issue, and this could happen as a Christian, but let's just say before you're bipolar or you struggle with what. You can become a Christian, but your mind is still going to have that injury or that issue. And the fact that we ask right. people at one level, you know, find ways to deal with only having one leg and we'll get a, a good way so you can move around. But when it comes to mental health, we'll say, well, we're just going to pray and God will change that and deliver you. And that's just incongruous to the reality of how God made our body. So I've got two things I'd like to actually kind of drill down on that if, you, if we can. The first is that conversion experiences are real. And conversion experiences, especially the really abrupt ones, they represent a reality that neurologists are aware of that happens sometimes, right, where you get massive rewiring via neuroplasticity in a brief amount of time. I I tell the story, but the person we used to buy, my band used to buy our merch from, our T-shirts from, he was the merch guy for a band called the All American Rejects. He was drinking a handle of whiskey every night, maybe a bottle, not a handle. I don't know, whatever, 15 plus shots of whiskey every night. He was a total raging alcoholic. He converted to Christianity and he was immediately cured of his alcoholism. It can happen. It does happen. There are case studies, you know, you could read about it. So I think that that's the first thing is that, and I want to know what you think, that we hear these stories. Also, these are the stories we tell more often than others. There are certain kinds of stories that are more likely to be shared. And so I think that, again, through another psychological concept of the availability heuristic, because we hear these testimonies so often, we are likely to sort of overestimate how often they happen, right? Because we hear about them all the time, just like terrorism. When you survey Americans about how likely they think it might be that they or a loved one would be in a terrorist attack, they wildly overestimate the probability of that because it's on the news all the time, right? So the combination of it does happen. These stories are crazy. Obviously not a leg coming back, but a serious mental disorder being cured, I'm sure is not out of the realm of possibility, but it's not common, right? So I don't know. What do you think about the fact that we lift up the stories where it does actually sometimes happen sort of miraculously in in a basic sense? Well, I I think it's how do we interpret those stories we lift up is the issue. I think every Christian believes that God at some level interacts with the human body. Even faith is an idea that something happened in my mind, a synapse, something fired that I believe yeah. God is real. And even, you know, Wesley and Luther will talk about a warming sensation. They had some, something that happens. So when people say, I don't want my religion to be experiential, that's kind of silly. What we're arguing about is how much we experience God. Some people experience God in their mind, some in their hands. And when they say in their hands, we're like, oh, that's crazy. But in my mind, it's okay. But the reality huh. is that's all the body, right? And we could argue about where you experience God in the body. But so to me, obviously, God is going to have an impact on our flesh. 
And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be open for that. And whatever the reasons for that are, whether someone wants to say the, the scientific reasons or the miraculous of just that when we pray, we know studies about prayer, all, all these sorts of things, that you can see things that we see as healing our people growing in those areas. My problem is when we lift that up as the only way that God can help someone. I'm for holistic healing. So we're going to pray for somebody who's struggling with their mental health. And we're also going to encourage them to seek out the best psychiatric counseling they can. But those aren't incongruous. And the best psychiatrists and the best counselors understand the role of faith within the healing process. They're not going to be hostile towards that reality. The danger is when we say, well, this person was really close to God because they were healed. I think one of the most powerful miracles is someone who lives with prolonged mental illness and still serves and loves God. A pastor who's actively preaching and teaching yet dealing with depression or anxiety. That to me is no less of a miracle than someone who's healed of something. And in fact, I've found with some people who are miraculously healed, sometimes they don't have a lot of compassion towards people who struggle, like the person never smoked again. And so that doesn't necessarily lead to understanding and compassion to have that just take it away moment. So I celebrate those things and pray for that. We all want someone to be freed from torment. You know, I mean, mental health issues, extreme torment, suicidal thoughts. You know, we pray for deliverance and peace that passes understanding. The same level, though, that cannot be contrasted to the idea of medical help. And that's the thing I think is really troubling where people say, if you have enough faith, you're not going to go to the doctor. You're not going to take the medicine. You're not. That's the really dangerous stuff. The softer version of that is sort of the health aspect of the health and wealth prosperity gospel. Mm -hmm. And the harsher version is like Jehovah's Witnesses not getting blood transfusions or uh, Christian science or whatever. Right. Well, you hear pastors do this like they can't just say they're depressed. Like there's clinical depression and then there's just everybody gets depressed and they'll say stuff like I got low blood sugar you know, or they'll, <laughs> I'm being attacked. By a demon. In fact, my sister yeah. helped me with this. She's a, a, a medical doctor, family practice doctor, actually works beyond that. And also our worship leader. And she uh, once came to me really politely and said, you know, Doug, some of the stuff you're describing these highs and lows and, and in terms of spirituality, that might not be a spiritual issue, but it might be the fact that you're dealing with depression. And she's someone who believes in all the things I believe, healings. And yeah. and then she, that was such a gift that she gave me in that letter. Because what I realized is as a pastor, I'd have those highs on Sunday. And on Monday, I'd have that low, you know, the dopamine, serotonin. I didn't have the reserves, yeah, right. right? But because I didn't have a language about mental health, I could only process it through spiritual attack, the problems with ministry. And that yeah. just freed me up when I got that language. Yes, exactly. We we use the language that we have available to us basically to describe things and it's always inadequate. And some language helps more, is more right. accurate than other language, right? Yeah. Uh, the other question I wanted to ask just briefly, if you could do a couple minutes on this, I didn't grow up charismatic. I don't, I've never had a lot of interaction with that branch of Christianity, but I have come up against it in interesting ways when I've interviewed people, for instance, on the series I did around end times theology and mental health struggles. I'm wondering from your perspective, is there an additional layer, sort of like the dark side of the coin, right? So you do have the faith in the God who's active in the world, and that is powerful and arguably accurate, but because of the increased emphasis on sort of the gifts of the spirit, the working of the Holy Spirit, you might actually be at an increased risk of not believing that you should just go to a therapist or a psychiatrist or try medication or whatever, because I I think of like a a comic where like the hand starts glowing before the fireball, you know, you got these powerful hands like, well, I've got these tools. I don't need that other thing. 
Whereas like a Presbyterian who believes in the cessation of all the gifts would be like, well, I better go get to a doctor because God's not going to do anything about this. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm paraf- yeah. or I'm caricaturing here. Right. Well, it's interesting because even those who believe cessationists are also have sometimes a view of the sovereignty of God where I'm just going to have what I have and I don't need the medical professionals. So sure. whatever our theological bent is, we can find a way to distort it. For me, you know, the, the idea of just what it means to be in the end times or the last days or charismatic or Pentecostal, I talk about this in my book, The Community of God, is, you know, Pentecost, in my opinion, is ultimately in the last days, God's going to pour out his spirit in us because we're righteous temples, that we've been made righteous and so that we can know the will of God in, in some part, that all people can at some level know the will of God. And so the Holy Spirit's poured out at Pentecost because they celebrated the giving of the law at Pentecost. So people used to live based on legalism, and the disciples were told, we're not going to live based on legalism, but on the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe when the Holy Spirit leads us, leads us into all knowledge, all truth, all understanding, and the discernment for that. And again, humans are wonderfully made, so humans should come with wonderful discoveries. So that idea that, which I think is not a Pentecostal theology, it's more this Reformed theology of humans are worthless, gnats on the butt of a donkey that God doesn't... And when we think humans have such a low picture versus God, then we don't trust the things that come from humans. I believe humans are wonderful and powerful and made in the image of God. And so we're going to discover amazing things like amazing medicines, amazing understandings about the mind and the body. The issue is I give God the glory instead of giving me the glory. I intersect that where that wisdom has come from. So to me, as a Pentecostal, that's what my interaction with God comes to, that I'm going to discern like, yes, we are wonderfully made. And the issue is that I'm going to now give God the glory instead of give myself the glory. Or Paul says in Romans, instead of serving the created, I'm going to serve the creator. And that's, I think, a, a, this obviously a huge issue. Why do we not deal with mental health? There's a thousand things, and I'm not saying it clear enough. But that issue is huge to me, that people who have a low view of humans have a low view of human discovery. I have a high view of humans. And once we are redeemed, sanctified, however saved, and filled with the Holy Spirit, then we can trust the best things that humanity brings us. We don't have to say no to those because, well, that's a human thing versus a God thing. That's a human thing as a human being made in the image of God, being made powerful, fruitful, to have dominion, and now yielded to God as an individual and within community. So I think if we had that view, we'd be much more open to the best discoveries, the science, you know, the best discoveries of how yeah. we talk about global warming, how we talk about anything. We'd be open to those things because we, the issue is whether I say I discovered all this and I don't need God versus thank you, Lord, for giving me this perspective about this, this creation that you created. Oh, that's really beautiful. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to chew on that. I definitely don't know what to make of we're in the end times. I probably, at this point in my life, I think that that probably has to be a meaningless phrase. Uh, well, or it applies to all time, all, you know, everything is the end times. Well, something. the context for me, though, is it's a very clear in the Bible, in Acts 2, he says, these are the last days. And so the last days are just defined as Messiah coming. And so when people even use the term of end times and last days, they usually use it in this scary kind of thing. But in the context of how it's used is the last days are when Messiah will be revealed and the spirit will be poured out. Now we're in on the fullness of that. No, but that's the idea of as we move forward, it's always more last. Sure. But people have hijacked yeah. that with some sort of, and I think Pentecostals with a lack of education in some areas hijacked it with these areas of weird interpretations of revelations. But it was first introduced in the New Testament as just, these are the times we're in when God's spirit is poured on male and female, young and old. It's mm. a good time that we're to celebrate, not something to be afraid of. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Let me train us back onto this mental health stuff a bit. So can you give us a a couple examples of 
things that a congregant will come to you with that you'll say, definitely, we're going to we're going to refer. And then maybe an, an example or two of something where it's on the line where you're like, uh, let's meet for a few times and see how this is going and then make a judgment call. I'm, I'm just curious, like for you, where the line is of time to find a therapist. Well, first, in my preaching and teaching, I regularly say things about the importance of mental health, of that it's a destigmatize the taking of medicine. I'll mention that, make intentionally to do that nice. and to encourage people. I think that's the first thing because people won't even come to you. Yeah, you, you have to kind of nor- that, right? normalize it to the extent that you are able, given your capacities as a pastor or whatever. Well, I'll even say I had a couple leave the church and they were visitors because I said, if you do not believe that mental health care is needed or that medicine is needed for mental health, you, this will not be the church for you. And I saw him stand wow. up and leave. And she had had a miracle experience where she's healed. I went, well, great, that's fine. But others have been healed through medicine. The practicality of, I don't believe my role as a pastor is to be that, to be like, I, I just don't have that hierarchical view of, I'm going to deal with this or you should deal with it. I wouldn't even give the instruction of you do this based on me because then I'm the intermediary telling them you should do this or you should do that. And then I'm in a power differential I don't want to be in. For me, it's mm. to ask them questions, to see where they're at, and then to partner with their plan. And I can only partner as much as my expertise. So even as a pastor, my expertise is limited to experience and education. So in that sense, as I listen, if there's something I can speak to that I have experience with that works within my expertise, more so, I'm going to see, ask them to try to figure out what their problem is and then what kind of plan they're going to take. What kind of step are you going to take? Do you, do you think this is something that counseling would help with? Ask those questions. If they're hostile towards that, then my dialogue is going to be about how spirituality fits into counseling. You know? If they're open to that, then I'm going to ask them, well, what do you think is the best step? And then answer their questions. Because we know even with counseling, you can send someone to a terrible counselor or a good counselor. Uh, they're going to need their own discernment that they're going to fight for this because they're going to have to fight past that first counselor. They're going to have to maybe go to find the psychiatrist who really understands their issue. And so if I just tell them to go, they're going to go, I tried to do it. Didn't work past. Yeah. Right. Well, and then once they're in, right. And we're learning this in my own training. I don't know if I told you I'm training to become a psychologist right now. And even once they're in, you don't just give them advice, right? Like you have to discover it for yourself. And the best moments for me in my own therapy were these sort of aha moments where my therapist just, He just sort of, you know, shepherded me, like nudged me this way or this way or asked an interesting question. And then I made the connections and I was like, oh, my gosh, I am just like my dad or, you know, whatever. Right. Like you have to come to it your own to have purchase, to have buy in. Otherwise, it doesn't like it doesn't just work to go. Well, he's, he's the doctor. Tell me what to do. Well, and this is the struggle. You know, there are some people who need forms of intervention where there's life and death and suicidal or an addiction. And so that is a little manipulative in that you might gather some people around and say, we are all pushing you in this direction, you know, for this recovery. Right. Yes. Yes. But the reality, you also know if someone doesn't themselves believe they need something, they won't do it based on you making the plan. And you'd mentioned this to me about what counselors and psychiatrists do I send people to. Yeah. This is what I have found personally. There might be some different names and people I have, but part of the process of healing, let's say there's a marriage that's in crisis and they need family counseling. They need to put the work in to find that counselor. Now I will answer the questions, but if I find it for them and make it free and cost nothing, then they're not going into it with the right motivation. Now, sometimes you'll do it because you just feel led and you'll, you're trying to help them. But if it's a costly problem, it should take a costly effort. 
I, right. I want to say, hey, you have enough integrity to give your best energy towards this, best energy to keeping your marriage intact, best energy to pe- you know helping your kids uh, deal with this addiction. You don't want to stand before God and say, well, I just did a little, I gave up because I got frustrated. You genuinely want to give your best energy. And to me, that's advocating for their worth. I think it doesn't advocate for someone's worth by just telling them, let me tell you what to do and you do this and do that. Instead, I believe that God can not only lead them and direct them, that they have a certain strength to take that next step. And then I can praise them in that. We can come to an agreement. What are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to, and then I can ask them, did you see that counselor? How did it go? If they want me to, obviously I can, I'll ask those boundaries. So that's my issue of how you help people with mental health is you've discover where they're at and as best you can, you try to partner with their plan. Sometimes you feel like you got to give them a little bit of a plan. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's kind of, to me, it's a case by case situation. You just see they're so worn out. They're so tired. They want that. And it's okay. You can just do that. You can help them because. Yeah. There's also actually an interesting cultural element here. We don't have to get into it, but we're actually talking you and I about basically Western culture, Western individualistic culture, because in a lot of more collectivist cultures, therapy and psychiatry or whatever are really seen by the people in that culture as like a doctor tell me what to do kind of a thing. And in fact, if you treat them too Western, they will leave. And so you have to kind of ease into that with those kind of clients and and actually really discern to what extent it would be helpful for you to do the Western thing, which is have them take control of their own treatment, right, and take ownership over it because it actually might backfire given their cultural background. But that does not apply to, I'm sure, the vast majority of your... But what you're talking about, and that's great discernment, is that ultimately that's why I think we should less be teaching people if they have this, have them do that. If they do this, you know, those those charts. And instead, teaching people how to meet people where they're at, to actually Mm. meet them within their cultural context. I remember I taught a, a, it was a bunch of Koreans for a disciple training seminar, a one week seminar. When I teach classes, I'm like, hey, give feedback. And people just give feedback in, in non-Korean settings. In that setting, everyone, no one said a thing, right? There's right. this awful yeah. thing here where they were waiting for me to call upon them and certain things that, and even if I explained it, I'd probably get it wrong what was going on. But that's the same context in counseling, right? There's some people where they've lost their voice and everyone's told them what to do. And at some level, and this is where I believe God does help us, that he helps us speak within the culture context that someone lives in. So I'm not going to take my cultural context and say, you can only find healing through how I think someone's supposed to find healing. I may have to with someone who's just their whole life followed someone else. At some level, use that leadership where they more trust me as a leader, but use it in a way that sends them in a direction that will free them from that reality. And I think we all understand that when someone's looking for a father figure, you can be a healthy father figure or a dysfunctional father figure, but they still need that. And so you find a way not to bring it towards you. And that'd be the big thing, not to bring it towards me but bring it towards others where it doesn't become an entanglement of now I'm their leader instead of. Yeah. So you do have a few names though. Right. And so I'm one thing I'd like to do it with these conversations is help people think about how they would find a therapist or if they are a pastor, how they could have a few of these names in the back of their minds. So I know that you don't just automatically refer out and I appreciate the nuance of your process, but in terms of those names, because there are good and bad therapists, what were you looking for? Did you ask questions? How did you find these people? Did you meet them organically? What was that process like? 
I feel like this has been pretty frustrating, actually. You know, I live between Seattle and Tacoma in the fill of, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And the relational aspect, to me, obviously, there's a few counselors and people I've met, and I just see them as I need them also to be somewhat intellectual. You know, I, I you can tell even the depths of someone. I want someone who's a little smarter, and I know that sounds right. really... So those have been people I've, you know, recommended towards. But you know, the reality of counseling costs so much, the economic issues... So it is really a challenge for me. So it's more a question of, I will send them then towards maybe an organization that within that organization has lots of options because at least they're a respected organization, a counseling service that's respected. But it, I don't know, because even Christians will think, well, I need a Christian counselor. And sometimes that's the worst thing for them because they actually need that to be you know, taken apart and just realize regardless of their faith, they, they were abused and now they're struggling with PTSD and there's signs of PTSD, and even a non-Christian psychiatrist is going to understand that and help them be in a healthy way as they exist in church. Uh, so I don't know. You know, the recommendations to me have been, I have not been as confident to say, everybody go to this guy or this woman, because it's so different, the needs. And then, you know, people connect. You also, in the counseling process, have to, at some level, the patient has to make a connection with the therapist. And I might make a connection with that therapist, but if they don't, they might need someone that I don't even like, like a counselor. I'm like, that guy is kind of a jerk. You know, but yes, if they're getting right. healing through that, like I can't judge that. And so that's my struggle with the recommendations because I know what I like, but I don't know if that's what other people need. Sorry if that's too vague, but that's no. kind of where I'm at with this. Every time I get this question, someone says, where should we go pastor? I'll give them a couple of recommendations, but honestly, I'll say, you know, you're going to have to do some research here. It, it depends on the issue, of course, if right. it's trauma done towards someone versus marital difficulties or things like that. Yeah, yeah. If you have PTSD, like you, you want to find somebody who is has worked with, you know, PTSD clients or whatever. No, this is, you're right. It is difficult. And I'm I'm in the process of working on a group of resources with my friend Sari right now called SoYou'reDeconstructing.com, which we're we're putting together sort of some finishing touches on. But there's a therapy page and our recommendations are fairly complex. I mean, it's like there's kind of a lot of uh, hurdles, you know, a lot of things to avoid. We're not doing noetic counseling. We're not doing biblical counseling. You know, we're we're talking about like actual therapy with a master's degree or more, you know, because you don't get training for really serious crises in those other traditions, uh, not to mention they're probably just wrong. And yeah. sort of wrongheaded at the core. But even with good intentions, you don't know if someone's got bipolar. You're not trained to, to spot it, right? And so anyway, it is, it's very and complicated. That is, and that is one thing that I do make the distinction between – like for once, one thing, I don't mention anything I do as counseling. And I, I've taken a, a classes on how to minister to the sin against people dealing with certain traumatic issues. But I just think the whole concept of them assuming that what I'm doing is counseling – leads to can lead to misunderstandings and also there's just a liability issue that i just don't want sure. someone to think they're getting the same uh, but with that exactly when people say christian counseling if it is that idea and they don't know about those terms you gave but the term where someone's just give a scripture for every problem yeah i think there's scriptures for every problem but i don't know if that's going to deal with the problem actually i do know it's not going to deal right with some psychiatric problems my mom has PTSD. She's talked about this in public, came from abusive backgrounds, found a good psychiatrist later in life. There was breakthroughs way later in life that finally all came out for her and has found tremendous healing within that. And she's also someone who will pray for deliverance for you. And it's both. 
Pentecostal at the core of even maybe your stereotype of the yeah. best Pentecostal, not the worst, you know, just someone who loves Jesus. But to me, if she had gone to someone who just gave her more scriptures, my mom had all the scriptures in the world. She'd be a great counselor in scriptures, and she is, and scriptures are counsel, but she didn't need that. She needed someone who understood what happened to her mind and her body as a result of prolonged abuse and gave the right medicine and treatment and care for that. And that's, to me, when we give these discussions, those need to be the discussions you have with people. Um, some people, they do need to kind of, hey, you're not living up to kind of a scriptural counseling. Like, you're just mad and angry. And if you're going to follow this, is kind of what it means to be a Christian or don't follow it. But you gotta, you're incongruous in what you believe and what you're doing. But that's a different issue than I think some of the issues that you're addressing with these resources where they need help. And it's not enough to pray at the altar. And I, I'm sorry, I'm talking a long time, but here's one example of it. PTSD. Uh, you know, with PTSD, there's d- dissociating that people dissociate, right? And for those you know who are listening, it's like when you're driving your car and suddenly you forget that you're driving. You're like, was I driving this car or not? You just, your mind just kind of separates from itself. And it's a survival mechanism. And I think God gave us to survive going through abuse. It's like, it's not happening to me. It's happening to someone else, however you describe that. But when people are integrating, and so they can come into a church and find some health and find some life and the church becomes a safe place for them. And what happens is they're, they want to integrate. So parts of their life start coming up or they start having really negative thoughts. They start crying and they don't know why, or they feel really angry or even just terrible thoughts. What happens in a church that doesn't understand PTSD in that sense, they'll just pray against that. They'll lay hands on that person and try to deliver them from that. That person doesn't need delivered from those feelings. They need a safe place where all those feelings can come in and integrate. They need to be able to come to the altar and instead of someone praying against it, just say, Hey, And we should know, too, who that person is. We should know how we're even praying. And I have a size church where we can do that. They're just processing this in a safe place. That's why we need to know these things. Because if you pray against it, it's not going to go away. And then it'll go away for a moment. Maybe they'll feel a release. And then later they feel that way. And then they think, well, what have I done wrong? Is Satan attacking me? Am I doing... So we're actually keeping them from the healing that the church is trying to provide. They do see it as a safe place. They are enjoying worshiping and just being present. And now their life's integrating and thoughts are coming out and feelings. And we pray against those feelings instead of providing a safe place for those feelings to express themselves. That to me is one of the key areas where we need to have some knowledge of what abuse does to people, dissociation, bipolar, some knowledge so we don't give the wrong remedy. Instead, we partner along with the mental health profession. Amen. This week on the patron-only exclusive episode feed coming out Wednesday is a conversation with Dr. John Petit about psychiatry and Christianity. So we do talk a lot about psychology on this show, of course, you, you've you come to expect that. But this was an interesting conversation, a bit more about psychiatry, although we do we talk about both. Uh, and he edited a volume or he's editing currently editing a volume on Christianity and psychiatry. So we're talking about, you know, positive and negative effects of religion and spirituality. We're talking about church based mental health stigma. We're talking about natural or faith healing traditions. Talk a little bit about possession, hearing from God, these kind of uh, difficult to describe and and really talk about scientifically phenomena. So it's good chat. And if you're kind of interested in that world, as you all know, I am, I think you'll enjoy it. So episodes like that, there are two a month. They are exclusive to patrons. You can become a patron 
for $5 a month. You, you can give more if you'd like, but you needn't feel pressured to at patreon.com slash Dan Coke, or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron. Okay. Back to the episode. I am now joined by Episcopal priest and chaplain Kira Austin Young from Nashville. Let's get into that conversation. All right, Kira, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. My first question is about seminary. So you're an Episcopal priest, so you do have to go to seminary. It's a fairly significant grad school process as far as, you know, becoming a pastor or priest goes, right? So my first question is, is this the kind of thing they talk about if you're in Episcopal seminary? Is there like a class where they say, you're not a therapist, oh, future priest, here's the difference? Or is it, did it come much more gradually and organically for you? So I actually, want, first of all, didn't go to an Episcopal seminary. I went to Vanderbilt Divinity School. Okay. Um, and I believe it was part of the required classes or at least part of one of the options for required classes to take a pastoral care class. Mm-hmm. And so part of that class was not only um, kind of the the skills of pastoral care, which, like you said, kind of develop as you minister and as you kind of, you know, get good at, <laughs> at listening to people, you know, we learned like listening skills and kind of frameworks for thinking about um, family systems theory and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Probably a lot of the similar stuff that I'm learning in my um, doctorate of counseling program. Yeah, counseling psychology. yeah exactly. Yeah. And I always feel a little bit bad when I'm like talking to like counselors or therapists and I'm just like, I bring out the lingo, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and I'm not, I'm not one yet. All the, I'm, I'm a student. So all the lingo is very much where I'm living right now, you know, active listening and, Reflection right. I know, of feelings. To be dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, just enough to think that you're actually a psychologist. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it it was I can't even remember quite where I picked it up, but it was made pretty clear to me early on that like, yeah, no, my primary job is not as a counselor or a therapist. And there was like kind of a benchmark around like if somebody's coming to you for the same issue several times in a row, like there comes a point where you kind of have to say, or you should say, Hey, you know, I'm happy to continue to pray for you and to uh, meet with you. But like, I really think you might benefit from seeing somebody on a professional basis. And that's not only for the other person's benefit, that's also kind of to protect my time and myself and and set up some of my own boundaries. Because depending on who all is in your congregation, I mean, you could potentially end up spending all of your time just doing that. Yeah. And it might not even be effective, right? If they have a personality disorder or if they're bipolar or if they, you know, I mean, like there's a, a whole litany of things that just like, spiritual care or a a really good friendship or a really good mentor is just not going to get at, right? Exactly. So that's interesting. So I have this question here about the type of things you will tend to refer out to, but that's one I hadn't thought of was also just repetition. So maybe it's not a really severe question. It's just like, I'm kind of down. I'm really, it's a little depression, but it comes up every four months for a year or two from the same person. It's like, oh, maybe you're clinically depressed. 
Yeah, I mean, also relationship issues, grief is a huge one, you know, a divorce, other, you know, other kinds of relationship issues. Those are the ones like you see, those are kind of bread and butter in terms of things that you see, like pretty often, almost everyone is going to go through in some capacity. But yeah, when it kind of gets to be a little more serious, like you were talking about, if there's a potentially like diagnosable condition, that's definitely something I'd want to refer for. Yeah. So can you give me some examples of like, if possible, it'd be great if they were uh, actual examples, of course, no names, Um, something that you would immediately refer for. And then something that is on the line. It's a judgment call. You, you maybe you waited till they came a couple times or whatever. It's just good to get a kind of a sense. Yeah, I've been fortunate in that a lot of my uh, parishioners have been very emotionally intelligent, sort of on their own, and have actually come to me straight from the get go to kind of say, hey, I, in this case, a parishioner had a family member who was quite close to them die suddenly and tragically. And I just got an email saying like, this has been a really overwhelming thing for me. And I just can't kind of get on top of it. Could you recommend somebody that might be able to help me? And yeah, I sent that person a, a few names and she found somebody that was a really good fit. And it was so wonderful to hear like months later, she messaged me and was like, just thank you so much for bringing for referring me to this counselor who has been just such a help for me. And so, yeah, like I said, I've been kind of fortunate to have people that that are very open to seeking professional help and oftentimes have the resources to be able to do so. Um, Episcopals, man, they're 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 <laughs> coastal elites. They make plenty of money. I mean, isn't isn't part of it that you're that it's Episcopal like it's different than if it were a Baptist church or something? I think there is. I think there is a lot of uh, there's a lot more openness to to seeking help to, you know, hey, if my relationship is in trouble, um, maybe we should go to couples counseling. And that isn't there isn't as much of a kind of block to that in terms of like, oh, well, no, because that would be admitting that we have a problem or that's something only sick people do or. (laughs) Yeah, there's, you know, as far as American Christian denominations go you know, Episcopalianism is, is pretty much on the leftmost spectrum. You could maybe Unitarians and there's, there's a, there's a few, Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, but like pretty much pretty squarely on the left, which tends to mean more open to science, you know, you know maybe even to a fault. Somebody might say, I'm not going to say that we don't go, we are, don't have a church right now. Uh, as we left one and then we got, we had baby and then COVID but I, I have gone to our local Episcopal church more than any other church in the last year and a half. So I'm perfectly okay with Episcopalianism. <laughs> uh, I don't have those criticisms. But, you know, you know the point is like Episcopals are not going to err on the side of not enough trust in science. That's that's a pretty fair. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Compared to other denominations anyway. Mm-hmm. Where is your uh, parish located, by the way? Is it urban? Is it in a city? Is it more rural? Yeah, so I'm in an area called East Nashville in Nashville, Tennessee, oh, which yeah. is like sort of the like Brooklyn of Nashville. Yeah, right. you know? yeah. <laughs> Very known for kind of being a, a hipstery, liberal, progressive area of town. I have a lot of LGBTQ folks in my congregation, a lot of them who've been there in you know, in the neighborhood and in the congregation for a long time. Again, like the makeup of my congregation is pretty left-leaning in terms yeah. of American Christianity. Sure. Especially Tennessee, right? Yes. <laughs> um, but okay, so that's interesting. So LGBTQ population, 
has a different relationship with psychotherapy than a lot of other populations. You know, especially trans kids have a lot of mental health issues. There's a lot high correlation. So I'm wondering if there's anything there that just is interesting to talk about in terms of referring to therapy or as you are finding therapists that are competent to handle stuff for your parishioners, are you on the lookout for people who have experience working with LGBTQ populations or in terms of your um, discernment process, has that played in at all? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the really, the things that I struggle with, and I think a lot of maybe, you know, more left of center theologically or mainline traditions struggle with in terms of therapy or finding therapists is that, and I've, I've found, I've found this issue with myself as well, is seeking somebody who's sort of culturally competent in Christianity, but isn't like a believer in conversion therapy. Yeah. So like, I want to find somebody who can like speak my Christian language, who realizes that my spiritual life and my religious life is very important to me or to my parishioners that doesn't kind of look down their nose at that, but that also like, isn't going to, tell me that being gay is a sin or that divorce is always evil or, right. you know. <laughs> yeah. Stay in an abusive relationship or something like that. Right. Exactly. No. So that, that brings up a really interesting and it's massively important. So I'm in Seattle and I am in a program that is, it's an APA kind of standard, you know, modern psychological program, but it is at a evangelical institution hmm. and there's only four doctoral programs in Seattle and two of them are at Christian schools. And one of those two, the Seattle school is the largest one of the four pumping out the most practitioners, or I guess, sorry, masters and PhD combined. Anyway, so up here, it's actually not hard to find people who are at least competent to, to work with, you know, faith-based clients or whatever. It's a thing that we think is kind of funky about our urban area that happens to be that way. That's probably not the way it is. Most of the people getting sort of legit counseling degrees are not at religious institutions. And if they're not religious themselves, they might not have competency in that area. Has that been difficult, for instance, in Nashville, which is, you know, more of a culturally conservative place? So maybe it would be more like Seattle there and it wouldn't be so hard. I'm not sure. Maybe Manhattan would be the hardest. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's more that when I see somebody that says that they're like a faith based counselor, my hackles kind of raise because oh, yeah. that that makes me think in the kind of conversion therapy direction um, or biblical counseling, noetic counseling, these these kind of like fit quote unquote scare quote therapies that do not require master's degrees by accredited institutions that are not evidence-based can be incredibly damaging. Obviously, conversion therapy being maybe one of the most splashy headliney of them, but there are, there are many of these. Exactly. Exactly. So that, that sort of niche of being like, obviously a person who respects and respects science and uh, all those things that we kind of know, but also feels that my faith and my relationship with God is a very important part of my emotional and spiritual health. And, and there are more and more counselor as Nashville has grown, like that has been less of an issue, yeah. but more often than not finding somebody or referring somebody like that's going to be based on kind of like personal knowledge or a personal recommendation from someone like I know or trust just to make sure I'm not getting into <laughs> We're sending somebody to somebody who could do a lot of damage. Oh, yeah. Uh, therapists can do a lot of damage. So so you do have a kind of a list of names then. Yeah, you've got people in the back of your mind. Are all of those people that you happen to meet through other things or are any of them people 
that you sought out specifically for the purpose of being able to refer parishioners to a greater number of therapists or something like that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, one of the fortunate things about going to Vanderbilt and having quite a number of classmates who did not kind of become ministers in the traditional sense of pastoring churches is that uh, a few of them are former classmates of mine who I know and trust them to be professional. And, you know, and again, like whenever I send people, I'm always very cautious to say, like, if this doesn't work out, like ask that person for a recommendation Yeah. because like finding a good fit like it's not it's not the easiest thing in the world and so a lot of times you just have to ask for recommendations and ask for ask for help so let's I get mean, into the nitty gritty if we can a little bit so if you went to your mdiv program with them or did you do a, a doctorate mdiv yeah so if you did your mdiv are these people who stopped the mdiv and did a psych degree or they added a psych degree later or are you talking about some people that don't actually have a master's in psychology, but do life coaching and other types of sort of softer counseling? Yeah, no, these are mostly when I refer people, it's usually to folks that either got an MDiv or a master of theological studies, MTS degree with me at Vanderbilt and then went on to do an LFMT or yeah, uh, other kind of counseling degree. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if this, I, I don't know if this ever came up in your seminary, but I would think that there have got to be like legal implications for referring people to therapists that do not have sort of like institutions that prosecute them and, and, and revoke license, you know, some sort of accountability like that. I, I don't know that. I mean, I don't know if you know anything about that. Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I'm not sure of the implications, but again, like there's a reason I'm Episcopalian and it's because I sort of agree and look up to kind of the institution as a way of sort of keeping setting setting the lines and setting the boundaries for like what is and isn't appropriate. And certainly people can always violate those like but there is some accountability, there is some kind of disciplinary process. And so all of those, all of those things are in place to some extent. There's some kind like you wouldn't go to a lawyer who just wasn't accredited, hadn't passed the bar, right. wasn't licensed to practice in your state. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. So if you could distill, actually, let, I want to follow up on that. That's actually such an interesting and important difference between various denominations, you know, there's a lot going around these days about sort of abuse of power by spiritual leaders. And one thing that I really like about the more mainline traditions is that they tend to have pretty robust accountability structures in place. So whereas I understand the pull of, for instance, Baptists who say, look, not everybody needs to like go to fancy college to do God's work. Of course, that's true. But when you have a pastor start to abuse their power, there's no recourse, really. If they're in the Southern Baptist Convention, there is. But if they're just like some sort of Baptist-ish free church, then basically, if that person has narcissistic personality disorder, they will take down however many people will stick by them till the end until they run their lives and everyone else's lives into the gutter. That just can't really happen in the Episcopal Church or the PCUSA or whatever. There's just there are people who can fire that person long before. Now, they could then go start their own thing, but it won't. The parishioners who were there at the beginning are sort of protected 
at least in large part, from these massive abuses of authority that can drag on for years and years and years and churn people's lives in and out. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the ideal. Like, not that there are not any, like, toxic personalities or priests that have abused their authority and not that they're, especially kind of in previous decades, that there haven't been bishops and other members of authority who have looked the other way because so-and-so is just such a nice guy and um, we wouldn't want to you know, run him out of town on a rail or, you oh, know, and, and that people. church makes a lot of money or whatever, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's by no means perfect. And obviously, I mean, the Roman Catholic church has a very, very robust institution and has obviously a horrible track record with things like child abuse and child sexual abuse. So it's not a cure all, but I am grateful for those structures most of the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I've got two questions left for you. The first is about your own therapy. Uh, We talked before and you mentioned that you've done some therapy as well. I have as well. How does that inform the way you talk with parishioners who have sort of life issues that may or may not uh, require or, you know, be encouraged to try therapy? Um, I think like I'm pretty open about my own experience with therapy because one, it's something that I do as like a mental health prophylactic, I guess, (laughs) you know, I mean, I, I'm not currently like particularly suffering or diagnosed with any kind of condition that needs treatment, but it's something that I do uh, for my own, for my own mental health, for my own processing, because my job is very stressful and I'm listening, I'm listening to a lot of people's emotions and, you know, spiritual issues and, and things like that a lot. And oftentimes, you know, may be called into kind of traumatic situations sometimes. And so to have a place that I can go and kind of process that information, and I'm, I'm pretty open about that that's kind of what I do and that's what that is for for me, I hope kind of gives people permission, like to talk to me about that kind of thing. And to, again, if they're, if they need a recommendation to ask for one, I want my goal is to sort of normalize it, that it's not something that is seen as like, oh, you go to therapy, you must be sick, or you go to therapy, maybe you shouldn't be a pastor. And it's like, no, to be a good pastor, I go to therapy. (laughs) Right. Do you mention it in homilies and stuff like that? You know, I think I maybe have, but definitely in kind of personal coffee hour kinds of conversations, or I'll say something like, oh, yeah, I was just talking with my therapist about that, or, you know, (laughs) I mean, particularly right now, when we're all kind of in this collective crisis and trauma, to have somewhere to process that and to talk about it has been really helpful. It's always one of those things that I'm like, do I really need this anymore? Maybe I could like save myself the money and um, not do it as much. And and I go every other week and like, sometimes it'll be three weeks before I go. And by the time I get to that third week, I'm like, this is why I go. <laughs> I totally get that. Yeah. I've actually, I've been thinking about this recently that just as a person now in the public sphere, you know, have this podcast, I will have a therapy practice in about four or five years, maybe a smaller one earlier than that. And, you know, just planning on doing writing and speaking and just kind of being out there that like, I have also thought of it as I wouldn't have used the word prophylactic, but that's good. It's a defense measure against me getting a big head, 
against just kind of getting up my own ass, you know, to use less technical terminology, to have a person who understands me and understands the mind very well to be able to push back. There are other things like friendships and, you know, other various ways of doing that as well. I'm wondering if that comes up for you. And I don't know the size of your church and I don't know, obviously men and women are not all the same, but for me, like I'm much more worried about my ego and about abusing my power. I tend to be more worried about that than I am about like secondary trauma of picking up other people's trauma and whatever. Although I will probably, that will change once I'm a therapist because I will be absorbing it all day long. But at, at this point in my time, in my life, you know, so I'm wondering, I just want to kind of toss that out there and see what resonates with you or how you process that actually in a different way. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly an interesting um, thing to kind of like toy around with. Like I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's about my ego, but I am cautious that I am in a position of power and it's very easy to start breaking those boundaries. It's very easy to start I mean, and I saw it at even some of my churches growing up, like you confide in something to a parishioner that you're friendly with, that you're working with, that you're doing ministry with. And all of a sudden those boundaries start to blur and emotional or physical fair start. It doesn't always have to be, you know, I'm going to destroy this congregation. (laughs) Right. It's not all narcissism all the time. There's other (laughs) things, right? Yeah. Right. And um, to just kind of have like just to be able to keep a keep an eye on that and to have a third party to bounce things off of that isn't my partner. And and to the secondary trauma piece, I also do some hospital chaplaincy. So I'm often called into some pretty, pretty gnarly stuff that like not everybody gets exposed. Hopefully not everybody gets exposed to at some point in their life. And so to have somebody to kind of talk to that isn't kind of going to be like, I mean, even my, my beloved fiance is sometimes like Kira, that's just a little bit too much for me right now. (laughs) Yeah. You don't, it's not your uh, fiance uh, spouse's job to absorb that stuff. I mean, that's something that I'm going to have to figure out how to deal with as well with my wife. Yeah. I guess my last question is just, if you've got any particular anecdotes or stories from your parishioners or whatever, like something encouraging that helps us remember that this stuff works a lot of the time. I just like putting a little flesh on the bone. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I just keep going back to that uh, parishioner who was looking for a grief counselor. Again, a lot of times, sometimes you make referrals for things and you never really hear how they turn out. (laughs) Of course. Or if the person actually sought out somebody, if they decided to just go it alone. Well, um, and your friend who's the therapist can't tell you anything about it. <laughs> they can't even tell you if the person is their client or not. So you really don't. That's really a black box when you refer out like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was just really encouraging to hear that that was something that worked and that was such a meaningful relationship for her. And it also was encouraging because like, again, I, I don't know this person like as a therapist and, or as a counselor. And so I was like, I mean, I know her as a person, but like, I hope that that worked out and, and it did. I, I would just say like not being afraid to kind of ask people for, you know, who do they think is good? You know, if you could go to anybody, who would you go to? Again, like, I mean, I've had, when I was seeking out somebody to do our premarital counseling, one of the issues that came up was like, everyone that I would want to do it, I already know. And so how do I find somebody? Yeah, Yeah, that's, yeah. (laughs) Well, and depending on, yeah, depending on how deep people go with premarital, that can be 
that's less worrisome than, you know, dealing with PTSD or something like that. But it's not ideal. It's best to get a really an objective sort of a neutral third party in there. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I kind of wanted somebody that we could set up a relationship with and then kind of go to for sort of maintenance visits. Yeah, exactly. To be able to go back. Right. Yeah. Actually, I do have one last question for you, because so many denominations and individual churches are so different on this. You know, one big problem with therapy is is that it's expensive. And generally speaking, the best therapists don't take insurance because they don't have to. And the market will give them a full rate without having to take a cut and give a portion to the, you know, whatever the insurance company, you know, basically they pay a lower, lower than standard rate. Um, And some people will, a lot of practitioners will have some hours per week that they set aside to do that work at lower rates. But, you know, it is a luxury item or at the very least, you know, a pretty good version of it requires pretty good insurance or something like that. Not everybody has that. And I know that in the Episcopal tradition, you guys are very conscious of, wealth disparity, you know, sociopolitical power disparity. So uh, is there anything that your denomination or your church is able to do? Like, do you guys subsidize it? Are there networks of people who do it for for less? Uh, When does that become an issue? I know East Nashville is the shit right now, and most of them have a little money to burn, but I'm sure not everybody. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it still comes up. Yeah, I will say, like, from a, um, a kind of church putting their money where its mouth is perspective, my personal insurance is very, very good. And we have a very good like employee assistance program where we can, through that program, see a counselor 10 times for any particular issue yeah. like a year. Cool. Um, but in terms of like helping parishioners get to see somebody, that's less of a a possibility, I think. And in fact, I was looking through, I have a health savings account with my insurance. And it was interesting to see that I could pay for personal therapy through the HSA, but not couples therapy through the HSA. Huh. So I thought that was so interesting. <laughs> well, it's because it's all medical model stuff. And, and yeah. couples therapy is not thought of as something like you have a diagnosis, like you have a infection or something like that. You know, exactly. it's one of the <laughs> shortcomings of the current system. You know, a pretty important part of one's life yes. and <laughs> is like the health of your primary relationship. <laughs> yeah, it's massive. And I'm sure it actually has correlates and actually causes physical health stuff, too. I mean, of course, the the medical model is a is a big thing that uh, is being talked about a lot. I know through in our own program, it's it's being debated right now within that community. Put it that way. Yeah. All right. Well, Kira, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your perspective. If people are in Nashville, what's the name of your parish if they want to come check you out? I'm at St. Anne's Episcopal Church in East Nashville. Awesome. John Harrelson, my former pastor of 10 years. I want to motivate why I have you here. Okay. So a year and a half ago, we left your church (laughs) and mostly over a disagreement that you and I, like a pretty deep disagreement that we had. And I think still have, I'm okay with that. I'm not angry or anything like that. I just want to say, I still wanted to interview you because about six years ago, maybe it was seven. I don't, I don't remember exactly what year it was. I got back from a trip and I was like, can we get together And I was like, I think I need to start therapy. I've got some stuff that I am not equipped to deal with. And you were like, ask me three or four questions about it. I think we talked for 10 minutes and you're like, 
I think I got the guy. And he was the fucking guy. I mean, <laughs> he is like one of the best decisions I've ever made. He is the one who encouraged me to start the program I'm in now to become a therapist myself. I mean, just mm-hmm. life changing. He was totally the guy for me. Uh, just a fantastic practitioner. And you introduced us. You referred me. So when I thought well, I'm going to do an episode about pastors referring to therapists, I got to talk to John because this is where it started for me. So you could respond however you'd like to that opening segment. I, I'm open. No, that's that's so awesome. In some ways, recommending somebody to go to a therapist is like being a matchmaker. You're, you're like yeah. setting people up on a blind date. It could work or it could be terrible. So it's always awesome when it works and really helps the person. It, were we walking around the UW campus? Yeah, Is we that, were on the okay, we were yeah. on the UW campus. It's a beautiful summer day, I think. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay, so let's start zoomed out and then we'll we are gonna zoom like pretty far in to like what criteria are you looking for and how does the church decide what to pay for? I mean, I really want to get in the nitty gritty, but before we do mm-hmm. When did you know in your pastoral and career development that you would have to be good at this, that you would need to discern when to refer to a therapist rather than just be the world's best pastor dealing with all the world's problems? No, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I trained at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, the denominational seminary for the denomination I'm part of. And I was in the MDiv Master of Divinity program. But the school also has, has, it still has, uh, a really strong counseling program. So the uh, Master of Arts in Counseling. And as a pastoral track, you had to take a couple of counseling classes during your time. And that, that was basically the paradigm that they set us up for is you're going to have to do some pastoral counseling, but your goal is not to become a counselor or therapist. There are people that are trained and equipped for that. And I was in seminary in the 90s. In many ways, I was trained with that understanding of the pastor's job is not necessarily to meet with everybody, every, you know, going to meet with you every Thursday afternoon at three for the next six months or something like that. That's just, you just can't do that uh, time-wise. But also there are people that are particularly equipped and trained and gifted in those particular areas that can do it way better than you can anyway. Yeah. So I know that you don't talk about it a ton. And you don't make a big deal out of it, which I actually appreciate. But you you worked with Tim Keller in New York City for a while before you moved out to Seattle in your early years. And Mm -hmm. it's okay if not. But I'm wondering if there was anything you picked up there on this topic, for instance, like how did he or other members of his staff think about therapists? Did they care about degrees, what schools you went to? You know, did you pick up anything in your early sort of ministry formation in New York? Uh, it was a very similar model that they had. A Redeemer was a very big church, a uh, couple, several thousand people when I was there, and they actually had a counseling center. The, the church had grown to the point where they developed their own counseling center. And again, it was the same sort of thing is where in, in certain ways, pastors functioned in a triage capacity where you sort of evaluate someone and then figure out, would they benefit from counseling? And if so, you know, there it was it was kind of easier. It was like go to the Redeemer Inc. Yeah, the official <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, 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 totally. But here we do, you know we don't have anything like that, so it's more of a person to person informal network. 
but some churches do like, I think Overlake on the East side, they have their own counseling center. And so some of these mega churches will have that. Yeah. My understanding totally. is that they tend to employ licensed therapists with masters or higher degrees and stuff. And that's mm-hmm. good. And if, and if your church doesn't, then that is not what we're talking about. So here in Seattle, there is no glut or sorry, there is a glut of uh, licensed therapists. We have a lot of schools and especially we have one, the biggest program that spits out therapists is actually Seattle school, which is also a seminary. It's a Christian program. And then there's UW, Antioch and Northwest where I'm at. And then there's Seattle university, which is Catholic. So there's a Mm -hmm. lot of Christian or at least competent in the world of Christianity therapists in Seattle, no shortage Mm -hmm. of that. I would imagine that that is something that you consider is that these are not people who are going to sort of laugh you out of the room if you talk about your faith. But in Seattle, it hasn't been hard to find that. Am I right? Right. There are uh, a number of counselors here in the city. But you do. There is a process for, you know, figuring out, do you want to refer people to that particular person? Right. I want to get to that. But just the, the fact of there might be places where finding sort of culturally competent to work with practicing Christians uh, who are doing real therapy, not, you know, so-called biblical counseling or whatever, you know, there are places where that could be difficult. Seattle does not happen to be one of those places. Absolutely. Yeah. But let's talk about that sort of triage, that first contact with a, a congregant or parishioner that you mentioned happening in New York as well. What is the discernment process? Basically, what are the questions you ask them or ask yourself early on? If someone comes to you with a personal issue, thinking about, well, is this therapy or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it uh, that's a great question. It depends. I mean, there there have been folks who have presented with various aspects of you know mental illness, uh, bipolar, schizophrenia, etc. Those are things that you know I know enough to know. Okay, I'm I'm way out of my league here. Then you're talking maybe therapist, but also probably psychiatrist you know, medication, right. that sort of thing. Yeah. So there, there are folks that I've encountered like that. And then there are other things like, you know, it, it depends. Uh, you, you get to know somebody and you get to know their story and maybe there is significant trauma in their history. And I, my wife was in private practice as a therapist earlier in her life. Uh, she no, no longer does that, not because she didn't like it or wasn't good at it or anything. It's just She's on a different path now. So I've always been pro-therapy. I've, I've always been like, hey, I, I think everybody could probably benefit from a therapy, you know, provided you're going to a good therapist. So it, anyway, that's sort of been my approach. But then there, there are folks, like I said, with significant trauma in their history where they really need somebody to walk with them through that. And a therapist, a, a, a very well-trained therapist is a great person to do that. And then there are other things like just an overbearing struggle with anxiety uh, or depression. And again, you're dealing with things that if somebody is struggling with, you know, maybe a clinical anxiety disorder or something, you don't just like quote Jesus, you know, be anxious for nothing, <laughs> you know, be, be warm, be blessed. You know, there, there are reasons for that. And you need to get them uh, under the care of somebody who can actually help them make make progress. So it's going right. to depend on what the person is dealing with. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about determining who's going to kind of be on your referral list. So we already mentioned that there's plenty of people with competence to work with um, people of faith in our city. So that's good. Uh, but there's a whole lot of other differences and there's different modalities and there is 
you know, different levels of training. Frankly, you're in the kind of the weird position of probably having like way more potential therapists to refer to than you need. Whereas I would Mm -hmm. imagine probably most pastors in America are not in that position. So that's interesting. So you have to be, well, you have the luxury of being, but it also takes the work to be sort of extra discerning. Walk us through some of the things you're thinking about, given that you, you have your kind of pick of the litter. This may be shocking for some people. A lot of it does boil down to word of mouth. Like you refer somebody to, hey, go see that therapist. And then they come back to you and say, hey, she really helped me or "Eh, that didn't, didn't work. If you hear a couple of those stories of, wow, she really helped me with X, Y, and Z, then that person, you know, becomes somebody you're going to want to refer to. We had a a woman on our staff, uh, Debbie Tacky, for about five years, and she was a trained, trained as a therapist. And she did a great job of kind of a more, uh, I wouldn't say formal, but maybe a more structured evaluation of a lot of therapists. And she came up with a, this referral list of, oh, wow. hey, if, if somebody in the congregation needs a therapist, here's a list of 10 to 15 therapists. Here is what they tend to specialize in. So if you're the person struggling with whatever, you can look on that list and say, hey, I think I'll give that person a call yeah. uh, and, and see if they work. So she did an enormous service to us with that evaluation. But you referred me to my guy before that. So you had some process. Now, uh, was Chris just a kind of a person? I think he used to go to Grace, right? So you yeah. had known him as yeah. a former congregant. So did you know him personally or was it was it more of the kind of stuff that you would be looking for that you noticed? But let's say before you'd heard three or four people have a good experience because and that, by the way, that is actually very good advice. It does sound like it is a little too straightforward or too obvious. I keep mentioning this in these interviews my friend Sari and I are putting together um, a resource right now called SoYourDeconstructing.com, and there is a therapy page. And we, mm-hmm. she reached out to some th- uh, psychology professors at Fuller Seminary, and one of the f- biggest pieces of advice they said was like, find someone you trust who's had a good experience with their therapist. That was like yeah. rule number one. So yeah. that is actually a really good piece of advice that people don't, you know, you don't necessarily think we're so used to Googling everything. But uh, it's like if we could go back to go back a generation uh, and start by word of mouth. But what is it like? Were there things about Chris besides the personal knowledge of him and people you you knowing that people had a good experience with him that, you know, made him, for instance, like a good candidate in your mind? Yeah, I think um, I mean, I knew Chris. Chris and I are friends. So I knew he was a solid guy. Uh, I knew his faith was really solid. I had known other people that had gone to him with good results. So it wasn't just, hey, there, here's my buddy who's a therapist and he's not that good at it, <laughs> but I want to help him. But or I like hope other... he is. Yeah. He really <laughs> needs clients. Right. Yeah. yeah right. right. Yeah. So I, I knew that other people had, had, had been helped by him. So. Okay. Yeah. Because you live in a city with so many therapists, do you basically not have to do much other research than that? Generally speaking, like, I guess Debbie did some of that research for you while she was working there. Um, but before that, like, did you ever have to kind of like, oh, you know, I need to find a few of these people and and sort of have to seek it out? Or was it mostly a kind of a thing that you could use discernment given sort of more organic interactions? Yeah, before it was definitely more organic. But I think my list before Debbie was able to do what she did, my list was probably too short. Not that there wasn't 
many yeah. more good counselors out there, but just, I didn't know. And as far as I know, I don't, I don't think there's a Yelp for counselors. Maybe there is, or there should be. I don't uh, think there are. I think people can technically leave reviews like on psychologytoday.com, which is the biggest directory, but it's not like a major, it's not really like yeah. Yelp. No. Yeah. Maybe somebody, oh, there's a billion dollar idea. Somebody should do that. You mentioned to me that you wanted to talk a little bit about your own experience in therapy, which has surely colored the way you think about uh, sending other people to therapy. So what did you have in mind when you mentioned that? Yeah, well, you know, like I said, for as long as I can remember, I've been very pro-therapy and have uh, encouraged people to go to therapy and seen it yield amazing results in their life. Uh, but I myself didn't go to therapy until uh, probably about four years ago. And again, not because I was opposed to it or anything like that. But at that point, my wife and I had been married for about 20 years. And we just kind of hit the wall in our marriage. And it was just like, hey, we we can't navigate through this anymore uh, by ourselves. We need somebody to come in and help us do this. Uh, again, I had told numerous people throughout my life, I'd encourage them to do that. And then I was finally doing it. And I remember the first day we went to see the guy who we saw and it was actually somebody Debbie had found and I, I had heard nothing but good things about this guy. And I remember sitting in his waiting room being absolutely terrified. Uh, like yeah, it's so funny. You had how, how many people do you think you had referred to a therapist by that point in your life? Oh, well over a hundred. Right. And uh, so he, you're he, still, it doesn't matter though. You're still petrified. That's so funny. Oh, totally. Because I, I, I don't know if it's just because insecurity about life in general, but you know, you're in there for marriage problems and you're, you're like, well, some of these are my fault or, or I'm at fault for by definition, you know, yeah, by, yeah, right. by, by, by definition, I'm, yeah. I'm part of this thing that, that isn't actually working right now. And I just, I was horrified. I was like, I thought he was going to hear our story and just look at my wife and say, I am so sorry that you're married to this clown, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and just laugh, laugh me out of his office. And, um, you know, he, he totally didn't. And, um, not that we, you know, we, and I in particular didn't have stuff to work on, but I remember, you know, after 50 minutes, you know, you kind of bare your soul. And I remember him basically saying, okay, um, you guys got some stuff to work on doesn't sound like you're in crisis. And I was like, yes, <laughs> not in crisis, not in crisis. Yeah. You know, that was, that was like a victory, but, but anyway, that you're, you're really putting yourself, you're laying yourself bare before another human being. You're giving them so much power into your life. It's, it's very unsettling, but also if you have a good skilled therapist, that experience of vulnerability being met with kindness and grace and wisdom is part of the transformative process as well. Yeah. The power thing is something that comes up a lot in our own, in my own program, as we learn to do this work. I wonder if that positive experience with sort of giving yourself over to his powerful position over you guys or around you guys, has that changed the way you think about your own role as a pastor? Oh, absolutely. I talked with my wife about this before, and I have her permission to say this. So, so we went to him for a while in 2016, and I've started going back to him individually for the last seven or eight months, and it's been huge. And so the guy that I go to, he's all about specificity of events. 
he's like, don't gloss over and generalize. Like, let's talk about a specific event because he's like shame hides under rocks that are not turned over. So he, he wants to, to, to talk specifics. And with him, I've been able to sort of go back into parts of my story that, you know, you just didn't realize were damaging to you and sort of launched you into the world in, in ways that are not good. And the way, the way that Lynn puts it, after we went through counseling and now me going through therapy again uh, on my own, she's like, oh, I've realized that, you know, in certain situations, John, you're not being an ass. Uh, you're, you're just really wounded there. And, and, and your way of being in the world, you know, is unkind to her or whatever. Not every time, a lot of times is a result of woundedness. And, and it doesn't mean then therefore I can do it uh, because I've been wounded, but it, it, it does mean it's a very different kind of approach than, you know, get your life together. It's, it's almost upside down. It's like, let's attend to that wound so that you can better love others around you. It's a very counterintuitive way, at least for me, and, and I think for many people of caring for folks is you come in really as a, as a healer, as a what's going on in that person's life, in their story. I, I know a guy who's a therapist out on the Yakima reservation, a Native American guy. And, you know, he works with people that are in all kinds of pain out there. And he says they have a saying, anybody's behavior makes sense if you know their story. And that's really true. So you, you, you try to sort of figure out what's going on. So you don't focus necessarily on the presenting behavior or problem. Like you don't want to whitewash it either or whatever, yeah, pretend like right. it's not a big deal. But the, the deeper thing is normally where does this person need kindness? Where do they need redemption and healing? And to know how terrifying it is to put yourself in that position of exposure. Which now you know. Yeah, totally. And you didn't before. Um, yes. Okay. I'm going to take a chance on this question. I don't talk about the Enneagram very much on this show. People who know me know that I'm fairly Enneagram skeptical. I say things <laughs> like, I don't think it exists, but I'm a seven. That's what I say. <laughs> you and Lynn, your wife, uh, were big on the Enneagram. If I'm doing my math right, three or four years before you guys started going to couples therapy. And mm -hmm. doing real where you did yourself did real therapy, psychotherapy. I tend to think of the Enneagram as like poor man's therapy. If you can't yeah. afford or don't have access to actual therapy, it's like a personality test. It can be helpful. Yeah. I want to ask, I'm, go, I'm being vulnerable here. Now that you've done both, does that sound right to you? Or is there, how would you say it? I, I think for us, the benefits of the Enneagram was that, it gives you language and categories for thinking about yourself and others that are very non-judgmental. Yeah. It's, extroversion, introversion is something like that, right? Once you, if you get your head around that, you go, I'm an extrovert. I'm married to an introvert. Oh my exactly. gosh. The, you know, the, the veil tears and you know, the sky's open at least yeah. on that issue, right? It's like very helpful to have language. Yeah, totally. So I, I would say, I would say there's a, a, a lot of truth to that is, like any sort of tool like it, 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 it can be helpful to go, oh, I'm not crazy. I'm married to somebody who is this personality and, and I'm this, and therefore right. we can expect problems in this area. It normalizes a lot of things. Do you think there is any merit to a, a hypothesis I have, a hunch, 
that one reason that the Enneagram has blown up in like evangelical circles is that it's not quite therapy and that there is a Mm. thirst for self-knowledge, but still, uh, especially in that subculture and many others as well, uh, skepticism around true psychotherapy. Maybe. I don't know. Most of the circles that I've run in for the last 20 years, at least Christian circles, have been open to therapy. So I'm not... I'm not really familiar firsthand with a culture that's therapy averse. You're not reading Christianity Today cover to cover every month or whatever and thoroughly steeped in non-denominational culture. All right. There's one more topic to hit here because therapy costs money and it costs, uh, frankly, a lot of money depending on who you're Mm -hmm. seeing and depending on your insurance and and frankly, how good your therapist is and whether they even take insurance. Uh, Chris does not take insurance, for instance. So... There are ways to deal with that. I know that there are some ways that uh, Grace Church deals with that. So you're in the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, denomination. What what does your church do? And how much of that is a denominational thing? And how much of it is just, this is the thing that we've decided to do as part of our budget? And just just talk through sort of like mm-hmm. the cost aspect. Yeah, no, uh, therapy is expensive. And we recognize that we recognize the good of it but also the you know for many people the inaccessibility of it so in in our, in our church the way that we have it structured is we have a group of leaders in the church called our deacons and they have a fund that they manage and uh, we give to it uh, from our budget but we also take offerings for it a couple times a year well during covid we're taking up offerings for it all the time and i remember uh, you used to do it during uh, i think it was easter sunday was the deacons fund and maybe Christmas Eve. And we would, uh, <laughs> Jaffrey and I would often disproportionately give our tithe money to the Deacons Fund because we were like, uh, we're more comfortable with this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We know that this is going directly to needs. And, you know, of course, you guys, you left that open for people's conscience by very clearly demarcating that. But I just think it's kind of funny that we would sort yeah. of like give to that more. More yeah. than paying for, for instance, your salary. I apologize. Yeah, totally. No, that's fine. And that's one of the reasons why we separate it like that so people can give directly to it. Yeah. And so the Deacons Fund has been used to pay rent, to pay bills, uh, help people get out of debt, that sort of thing, but also pay for medical bills and counseling. A lot of our Deacons Fund expenses goes to help people pay for counseling because it is a well-being thing. It is helping somebody get out from under something that is oppressing them. Yeah. And you don't have to get into, you know, anything that's sensitive, but I'm curious about, you know, if there are other pastors listening or people who are fairly well-to-do and want to set up their own sort of similar fund, like what are the principles of discernment in terms of when to use this and how many sessions do you tend to pay for? Or if it's a range, what's the range, you know, that kind of stuff. Some of of the principles we've used is you know, our deacons meet with people confidentially and they, they talk about finances, like, okay, where, where are you? Where, uh, how, how big is the need? That sort of thing. And we have wanted people to pay something, you know, like uh, pay, pay it, even if, even if it's a tiny portion of it, great. Uh, some folks aren't able to do that and we're, we're, we're good with that. And then we will pay for like a, a batch of uh, counseling visits, maybe five or 10, and then assess at that time, hey, how are, yeah. how are you doing? Are, are you making progress? Uh, is this helpful for you? That sort of thing. 
Yeah, I just I want to drill down on this a bit because I, I mean, actually, Jaffrey and I have ended up taking this as a model over the years, and we have taken a portion of our own charitable giving and just put it into a fund that we, more than anything else, we use for friends who need therapy, you know, like single friends who are still kind of working in the entertainment industry, you know, whatever, fill it out however you want, but they are going through a crisis. And I think we probably got the idea from the church. I don't remember, but it's the kind of thing I'd consider, you know, if you're listening and you have a good job and in, you know, your household does give uh, regularly, consider doing something like this and and figuring out what your own principles are. Anyway, I'm not going to beat people over the head with that, but it just felt like worth drilling down a little bit. Oh, ab- absolutely. I think it's, a, I, I think it's, it's so cool that y'all are doing that. It is a, a really concrete way to uh, bless somebody and help them. The therapy that I've gone through has transformed my life in, in some really profound ways. And I would want people you know, who need it to be able to experience really the gift of it. Yeah. Poor Jaffrey. I always say the best decision I ever made was starting therapy. And then depending on my mood, I'll say, well, second best after marrying Jaffrey. <laughs> and then now, now that Soren's been born, I'm very on the record as the, his birth is the best day of my life, hands down over my wedding day. But <laughs> thankfully she can at least partake in that one. Cause she was also you know, yes. obviously a bigger part of that than I was, but it really is that big of a deal. It has been that big of a deal for me. Um, so I guess, John, thank you for joining us, but also thank you for referring me to Chris yeah. seven years, eight years ago, whenever that was, I think it was 2013. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Any, any final thoughts? No, I, are you still going to him or? Yeah. So I actually, okay. I, I stopped, I stopped at the beginning of lockdown just because I was like, ah, uh, I don't, I had already gone down to every third week and I didn't really feel like doing like over zoom or over the phone. We did one phone session and I was just very distracted. I yeah. think I will resume with him soon though, over zoom, uh, because I, I just think I should at least be doing it once a month. I just think it's like, it's almost like preventative care. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just a, I, I, probably a thing I will do at least about once a month for the rest of my adult life. That's my plan. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, I don't love not being able to meet in person. I, I, I preferred that, but I'm, I think I will resume actually. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. He, he's great, man. And he got his doctorate since I started seeing him. He just had his master's back then. Now he's a big fancy guy. Yeah. All right. Thanks, All John. Right, man. Yeah. Good to be with you, Dan. Take care. Thank you to Doug, Kira, and John for their time and sharing their processes with me and with us. Thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing these conversations. He is available for podcast work. His email is in the show notes if you want to hire him. And if you'd like to become a patron, you can always do that at patreon.com slash Dan or you have permissionpod.com and click become a patron. Patrons get at least two exclusive episodes per month as well as access to the patron-only Facebook group, which is a fantastic little community. I think that's about it. I will see you guys with another episode next week.